Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby. And today we're talking digital transformation, in particular, digital finance transformation. And a very interesting guest, David Gravich. David, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Hi, thank you, Kevin. Uh, nice to be here. David, you're a CFO, but that's not your original background. Tell us what it is that makes you just a little bit different when it comes to CFOs and digital transformation. Yes. So my undergrad education was in electronics engineering. And for six years, I was a successful uh, head of product and a program manager for a publicly traded company in the telecommunications compliance space. And I was very, very successful as an engineer. And I found a lot of fulfillment there, having created automated test suites, working with all the telecommunication equipment and understanding technology for those that people that do know it through the entire OSI model, meaning understanding any system from how it operates at very core bits and zeros and ones and zeros as far as electrical signals and all the way up to how the programs are structured and then the business systems and so forth. To, and that very, very techy here, David. Very techy. Very techy. Not normally talk to a CFO about. How about giving how modems work? <laughs> and then in 2005, I meet one of the Milken brothers. So if you remember from the 80s, Mike and Lowell Milken were very recognizable figures on Wall Street particularly with respect to the junk bonds. I practically got hired on the spot because at that point, that group was undergoing a transition from being a financial fund to being a strategic fund. They just acquired a very large platform that was a $2 billion top line company. And they were looking to make additional acquisitions and bolt on acquisitions in order to create an education company that could service the continuity of the educational needs for the learner throughout their life, starting from early childhood education, through K-12, through post-secondary, higher ed, and so forth, and all the way into corporate training. And they hired me as a technologist, meaning as a specialist that would be responsible for sourcing deals, identifying potential companies for acquisitions, with promising technologies. I was hired for my technological talent and skills, but this was a private equity fund and a private equity fund that, how would I say this, very prestigious, very difficult to get into. And I was lucky and blessed to be part of that team and come in so early at the change of the dynamic from where it was just a financial flip, buy and sell, a private equity fund arbitraging on EBITDA and, and size to where there was a strategic fund that was looking to acquire and integrate companies in order to build a platform of fully integrated brands. So where I started with selecting and 
helping with sourcing. So identifying companies with promising technology, looking for technology trends, seeing how the competition did and helping with trading and the public markets and also the private acquisitions, as I said. I was also assigned a mentor who was, I don't want to name names, but he was very top and used to be very at a very high level in GE Capital and had over $300 billion under in deals under his belt. And so I got assigned him as my mentor. And so he really squeezed me and ringed ring me out over the next three to four years where I started to get exposed to the entire life cycle of the transaction. And besides that, I was also starting to get involved in monitoring projects, which are high stakes strategic projects that are hands-on in the portfolio companies, such as digital transformation would fall into one of those initiatives. Let's say you buy a company and their data is all messed up and dirty. There's no source of truth and you need to really reorganize the constellation of their systems. This would be something that I would do. And at the same time, while doing all of this and also having four children, I was also doing my MBA on the plane, basically, <laughs> because the deal flow was such that uh, on some weeks, I would have seven to eight destinations to cover. And I did my MBA in nine months with great effort, but I did, and I got a pretty good grade too. But by the time that I was finished with Knowledge Universe, that was the name of the fund and the organization that I was working for. This was 2009. This was the time when everything collapsed in the U.S. As far as you know, the CDOs, unfortunately, we were behind some of that. And not to the extent that we were designers of CDOs in any way, of course, but it was the banks. But we were actively involved in student lending and working with for-profits, higher ed, publicly traded schools. And so that crash touched absolutely every aspect of American capital markets and industrial sectors at every level. But most importantly for us, student lending collapsed, which meant that the performance of our major investments, which were higher ed institutions that were for profit, as well as some of the private companies that were acquiring, were going to suffer drastically from the shortage and the cyclicality of the student job production, so to speak. And so the decision was made to stop making placements into education space. And so the choice in front of me was go do something else or go and work in one of the portfolio companies that we've acquired over the years. And at that time, I thought that, you know, I'm going to go and do something else. And I started my own advisory firm in 2009. And again, with my great gratitude to the Milken brothers and the time that they've given me and the schooling that they've put me through and the connections that I've built and the network that I've built through the years while I was there, it basically created an influx of inbound interest for consulting and advisory services for me that I could not handle. It was so overwhelming. First of all, it was the first time that I was ever on my own as a businessman. Like I've never done any, and I never had entrepreneurial mentality as far as starting my own business. So all of a sudden, I ended up like 
in a situation where I had a bunch of customers to service and I had no idea where to start. Whereas I knew what I would do for each one individually, the volume was just great. There were consulting requirements for fundraising, for helping them with budgeting, for solving all sorts of operational issues, financial operations, and so on and so forth. And so that firm and that business has been running since 2009. I've developed a network of consultants that helped me. And now I have an operating partner and I only work on the investment committee decisions. And so during that time, when I was working 18-hour days, and I've gotten exposed to so many issues that are facing companies on so many different levels that are don't necessarily have anything in common, anything, again, from financing to how do we perform our renewals analysis? How do we measure our logo churn? That sort of a range of issues. How do we structure this debt instrument between three parties that are on the board in order to bridge into the next round all the way to our budget and marketing and our cost of leads is too high? How do we find an alternative source of leads? How do we restructure the funnel so that we can manage it better? So this sheer variety of projects that I got to handle gave me such exposure to a variety of tasks and skills that are needed for it that what I ended up to be after doing that for five years is a pretty strong generalist, I should say, with a very heavy tilt towards the CFO skill yeah. set. Um, thinking about the CFOs that climb through the accounting route, the thing that they're deep in is the finance skills, and they really start to struggle to, to acquire some of the more generalist skills. Yes. Yeah. And by the way, that's a great topic of its own, but I found that to be a very big challenge as I, uh, I love mentoring people. I've always made it part of my career and dedicated specifically time in my life to mentor people and make sure that I build them up. And I have great case studies, people that I'm very proud of that made it very far and wide. And the struggle that I always found is trying to build the controller up into a CFO. It has been an equation that until today, I have not been able to solve. Going and struggling and building up through the accounting track is just locks you into the quantitative analytics that sort of put a blinders on your eyes where you can't see what the numbers are really saying in terms of the business. What is happening with a business? What is happening with a strategy? How do we change? What levers do we pull? And so there are a lot of frameworks lately that have been, and I'm familiar with probably all of them right now, traction and all these different frameworks that are designed to sort of bring this together and help People operate cohesively by exposing and connecting different metrics to specific business outcomes like scorecards and, and OKRs and charts and boards and all that stuff. But yes, it's been a challenge to build up controllers into CFOs. And when we talk about digital transformation, I'll address that quickly. And I'm almost at the end of my own personal story. 
So in 2011, I picked up an engagement with a family office out of Texas. Is a oil family, second generation. They are very unique in that they are not open to the world, so to speak. Very cagey, very tightly held, very defensive, so to speak. And they just have a very low degree of trust for anyone to let them touch their money. And so we started with kind of like one engagement, advising them on the specific deal, whether or not to invest. And then progressively, we build a degree of trust. And after six months of visits and dinners and visits and dinners and then engagements, basically, they took me on as the family office manager. And so I was running their office until 26 for three years. So in three years, I uh, cleaned up. I did about 900 million in divestitures. I did about 750 million in acquisitions. I restructured. I isolated all of their real estate investments into its own operating company with its own real estate management company. And then given that they were all in commercial real estate as far as real estate is concerned, and 95% of their tenants were medical groups, medical practices, doctors, and sorts like that. All of the operating investments, I sold anything that was not relevant to medical and instead acquired a bunch of different technology solutions that their tenants could actually use. So building strategies, building synergies between the operational investments that they were making and the real estate investments that they were making. And so in the end, again, this whole roll-up strategy that I learned while at Milkins and playing on integration, one plus one equals three, and thinking big and building big, it paid off once more, where by the time I was done, they had a very tightly, very nicely operating company that was very well managed, very profitable, had a sustainable growth. It was basically a cash cow. It wasn't like a star anymore. It was just too big to be one. But it was exactly what they were looking for in terms of generating passive income, low involvement, high operating performance, and so forth. And in 2017, this is the first time when one of the CEOs of my past targets that I worked with when I was at Milkins, first he engaged me to help him raise Series A1 for his new venture called Mersion. And from the technology perspective, and this is where my technology played in and kicked in very heavy, I saw an unbelievable potential. And because I understood technology, you see, if I was just a CFO, I would be looking at it and I would be like, well, you guys are too early. Our valuation is going to suffer. You don't have traction. You don't have recurring revenue. Your contractual framework sucks. All of this, you know, it's like, I would be looking what at what are the things you look at to determine your valuation and determine how attractive you are to a buyer. Exactly. But when I was looking at it, I was looking at this technology and I was thinking about the promise and the strategy of what value it would be to its customers and what it would potentially deliver in terms of how valuable 
and the pricing structure. And I already had the whole thing sort of starting simmer up in my head. So I helped him raise a Series A1. So this is important. It's not a public information, but let's just say we raised it at X million dollars pre-money valuation. This was Series A. Then we raised the follow-on to that, which it was Series A1 that was only six months later. It was essentially extension of that round, but a, a little bit of a step down. Let's call that Y million dollars. And he talked me into staying on as a CFO. And this was the first time in my life that I was going to be an actual CFO, an operating CFO in a business. Moreover, so in a startup, not only in a startup, but in a East Bay startup or West Bay startup, right? Whatever you're going to do, Silicon Valley, basically. So all those things that I usually would try to steer clear from, I was now in the middle of them. And he taught me to stay on as a CFO. And I really, really liked him. I think he's a great guy. And I think that relationship has played a lot into my decision of joining him. He may think that maybe material aspects were involved or whatnot. But the truth is that I don't do jobs that I don't like to do because I just, why do them? Like you just suffer and it detracts from the quality of life. So I stayed on. Bottom line, two years later, we raised Series B at Y million dollars times 10. So it was a 10x step up in two years. We grew the business commensurately in terms of top line by about 10 times in two years. I've reworked the entire contractual framework. I've implemented ASC 606. So in 2021, we raised Series B. The new group of investors wanted to bring on their new CFO, typical case. I bowed out. It was a nice exit for me. And about a year later, I was approached by Bill Tyndall, who used to be a co-founder of Electric AI. And he asked me to join him as a CFO. What Tinrose is, Tinrose is a company that wants to build a world-leading conglomerate of integrated brands for managed service providers to lead digital transformation for small to medium-sized businesses. So when you brought up the topic of digital transformation, that's why I said it was so serendipitous, is because this is exactly what I'm working on right now. Now, when we talk about the digital transformation, you have to kind of think about it. So first of all, I have my own experience. When building Mersion, we were sort of small business, and then we started to reach into that medium-sized business. So I personally, as an operating CFO, have experienced the trajectory and the challenges of dealing with business systems at different stages of companies' life cycle. It's very true that what got you to where you are today probably won't get you to where you want to be tomorrow. That's probably true. And in general, I never take past as a predicate for the future. Like, 
just because something has transpired in the past in a certain way is in no way a predictor and the jokes are abound about how true that is. But the important lesson that I took away from my experience as an operating CFO and facing the challenges of digital transformations are the following. The root cause and the driving force behind the need for digital transformation is clean data. You need clean data and you need to be able to analyze that data in as much close to real time as possible. And you need to have a very high confidence in the outcomes of your analysis. Because when you're a small to medium sized business and you are growth oriented, you're constantly watching that cash forecast and you're looking at your runway and you're thinking about, oh my gosh, when is going to be the next route? How can I postpone it? What else can I do to not have to go and raise money? So data analysis and business intelligence become very, very important. Depending on the business model that you are operating, the constellation of systems will vary drastically. But I have found with the emergence and the development of certain systems in the market that there is a certain common denominator that you can now put at the place of your digital transformation strategy as the center and build around it, so to speak. Here's what I mean. Small to medium-sized businesses have an issue with the resources. As I said, you're constantly watching that cash balance. You're very hesitant about making investments. They generally don't have a proper CFO. At best, they might be able to allow a good bookkeeper, but generally they outsource even that finance function because they're trying to be as profitable as possible. They're generally family owned and operated and they're trying to squeeze every dollar out of it that they can. So they don't have very corporate sophisticated mentality about how do we organize the business and the business systems and IT infrastructure and all that stuff. And they don't really know exactly what problems are yet facing and what it is that they yet to do. But speaking back to the score, this might surprise many people. H-R-I-S, Human Resources Information Systems. Amongst them, and by no means this is a plug. I mean, like I'm not in any way related to them. I've had a lot of experience in consulting role and in my advisory firm and also as an operating CFO and as an advisor in rolling out a lot of these types of platforms. Now, this HRIS platforms, not all of them, two of them out of the ones that I've evaluated holistically, two of them stand out in their scope of capabilities. It's Rippling and Paylocity. Now, why are they important to digital transformation system? First of all, because just like I said, one of the areas in which small business doesn't have resources to invest is operational finance. They can't afford a good CFO. They don't have two fifty to two three hundred thousand dollars to pay a CFO. They can't even afford a good controller. 
would still be in a very high 175 at the very least. But we're seeing you know, a trend of a lot of firms employing a, a fractional CFO. Sometimes it works good. A lot of times it does not. Because generally speaking, he owes you no loyalty. Second of all, it's just a project to that person. And the CFO, if you look at it like at the bell curve and you think about 90% of the CFOs, they do not possess technological expertise to lead digital transformation initiative and overhaul. They would need some sort of a uh, CIO, like a chief information officer, partner, or some sort of executive level IT infrastructure person who really grasps and understands integration of systems, the flow of data, and so forth. So, as I said, the companies have a problem making investments in the finance, operational finance. They also have a problem making investments in HR, which is also very important. At best, let's say, take a little construction company or a little restaurant or retail shop or any other small business between 50 to 75 employees. At best, they will have some sort of admin acting a role of a HR person, but really having no true knowledge or sophistication of what is a life cycle of an employee. So these two HRS systems that I mentioned, and others do that too. I'm just saying that as far as complete package, in my experience, this is where I experienced the two that stand apart in terms of their completeness and holistic approach to everything. So Rippling and Paylocity both have integrated into their platform a full set of employee lifecycle management. So they have applicant tracking system, resume management, and resume process management, where you can put in, first of all, and, and, and you have a category and a full catalog of the entire organization replicated in the digital format. So you have each role, you have full org chart, you have roles and responsibilities for each job, you have resume processing built into it. You have applicant tracking system built into it. You have a performance management tools built into it already. So you can have a performance of the employee, 360, uh, full circle feedback. You have employee engagement tools that are built into it that have a great flexibility. That's as far as just the HR function of the HR information system. Then there's the finance of HR, meaning payroll, 401k management integration, integration with equity management platforms such as Carta, onboarding and offboarding of employees in terms of finance and payroll, benefit management, all integrated there. So you don't have to go into the different places to do all of this, nor do you need to have and extensive personnel to support the system because it's so intuitive and it's self-service oriented that the employee, they have an app on their phone, they have a website they can log into, and they do everything there. They can set up their 401 contributions, they can enroll into their benefit plan, they can make changes, whatever they need to do, 
They can put time off requests and get approvals. Uh, they're starting to cover an integrated and expense report management system as well, making Expensify and tools like that obsolete. And so the finance of the HR within the HRIS is full integration with QuickBooks, NetSuite, or other ERP. So your payroll, no matter how granular it can get, and it can get super granular, they now have job codes. They now have introduced identifiers for different sorts of billings that even ARPs don't necessarily match up to, meaning that they're sort of ahead of the curve a little bit where they can do more so that you always have enough, so to speak. So they fully integrate with your finance reporting repositories and your GL systems. And so the payroll gets processed in there and it all integrates and the 401k deductions and the management, all of that flows together and gets converged on that system. Now, there's another big aspect that when I talk about Tinros, where I work now, and we talk about managed service providers, is our vision is to have them be the catalyst and the executor of digital transformation, meaning that you retain a company that is a turnkey provider of digital transformation who's going to come in, look at all the systems that you got, and understand where there may be some breakdowns, why your data isn't as clean as you want it to be, where there are efficiencies to be gained, where you can replace some of the gaps as far as the resource investment and the resources, human resources with technology, and provide a full overhaul plan, and then also build it all together and put it all together for you. And then you just have a fully working constellation of business systems that covers the entire HR track, your finance stack, and so on and so forth. And so there is a lot of system integration that goes into digital transformation because that they requires deployment of new systems. And then there's also a lot of the support, which requires, oh, my email isn't working or how do I do this? How do I do that? And the providers like Rippling or build.com or any other business system that you use are all so happy to outsource the support of their system to somebody who knows what they're doing and free them from having to deal with it. But back again on the digital transformation. So considering HRS as the core system around which everything else is built. So you have the HR is already built into it. The finance of the HR is built into it. Then you have the IT infrastructure. And this is a major pain point, especially as the cyber premiums are jumping through the roof and the cyber breaches and cybersecurity becomes an issue number one, essentially, for companies and businesses that are data-rich. And so this, what Rippling and Pelocity has done, they've built in APIs or integration interfaces to other systems so that when you onboard an employee, and that employee possesses certain classification, all of the other systems and the access to other systems is automatically provisioned. So you don't have to even actually go and do that. So let's just say you use Expensify, you use build.com, uh, use QuickBooks, and you use, I don't know, SAS Optics, 
you use Google for email, you use Dropbox for storage and whatnot. And I'm onboarding a new employee. I just hired somebody into finance group who needs to have access to all of that. As soon as I put that employee as hired and change his status as hired, his account is automatically created in all of the systems that are part of my business system constellation. And so I don't need to go into each one and spend time provisioning it and worrying about how do I onboard them into this system and into that system provision right access. Everything is preset, pre-configured, and it's the HR platform that does it all automatically. So it wow. takes care of the rest of the stack. And that's a major, major, major advantage because otherwise this is what MSPs do, managed service providers do. What they do is they make sure that you have the right software, that you have the right. Now, what else HRS does is they also take care of the procurement. So meaning that as far as like the laptops for your employees, they have procurement built into the onboarding process so that it's like I'm selling HRS system here, <laughs> but this is digital transformation. This is, you talked about a business that is digitally transformed and that's what it looks like. That's what it means to be digitally transformed, that you have zero human touch as far as managing the employees and utilization of business systems to address business needs such as procurement of a laptop. So depending on the classification of employee, there will be already preordained type of a computer that's assigned to be procured for that kind of a person. And then the computer comes with a tool that they install that then, without the employee having to do anything, has the HRS download all of the software that it's necessary for that user onto their laptop without them having to do anything. And then it has the security mechanisms to monitor the usage, to monitor that unauthorized software isn't installed, that they're not using private storage tools to store business data. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff. And then there's also things like monitoring utilization of licenses. Why should you pay for 50 licenses if you're only using 45. So there's a lot of savings and efficiencies that can come from that. But most importantly, the onboarding and offboarding process of employees start to look like a piece of cake where it used to be absolute hell. It's like bringing in a new employee, just let wreck havoc across the whole organization. Oh my gosh, we got to get them into payroll. And now we have to also get them all up and running and all the systems. And then when somebody has a problem and their peril, their password doesn't work and they don't know where to go or how to save it or how to change it or something else isn't working in one of the systems and the more serious issues start to come up when you deal system to system integration. So for example, if you take build.com, which is an AP management system that can be part of the finance stack and it's integration with QuickBooks and you can have all sort of synchronization issues where, again, what is the source of truth data? Why am I getting duplicate bills here and there? How do I resolve it? How do I fix these issues? And that's where someone like us, like a managed service provider, will take care of that because we are the deployers and proactive monitoring of the entire constellation. 
What surprised me here, David, is that you've started in back-office transformation with the HR system and not the finance system, because I always regard the finance system as being the source of the truth. You've got a general ledger. You've got a set of accounts off there. The general ledger should tell you what your sales number is, what all your costs are, and you mm. the source of the truth that everything else reconciles to. But you started with the HR system. An interesting thing, Kevin, here is that you are right in that the GL system should contain clean data. But I am not sure you're entirely correct when you say that it's the source of truth. And here's what I mean. What I mean is that the data that resides in the data architecture, or you think about data cube overall, and all of the dimensions of business data that's involved for any given business, will find its place in the GL. And of course, it's your objective to make sure that that data is truthful and accurate. But where is it going to come from? GL system isn't the point of origination for data. And, and the so GL system only contains the numbers that have got the dollar sign in front of them. It doesn't contain all the numbers that are equally important to the business that are quantitative rather than financial. Correct. But also what's happening is that if you watch the trend really carefully as far as how the systems are configured, the GL systems are becoming more and more of a passive receiver of data. They have all these other systems in finance tech. You want to attack finance tech or stock, small, medium-sized business tech, typical. AP management, build.com, right? Like that's a de facto solution. I've used it so many times. It's pretty easy to use. I think there isn't all that many competitors. I mean, some trying to get out there, but let's just use build.com as an example. The invoice from the third-party provider is created in build.com. The profile of the vendor is created in build.com. All of that is then pushed into your GL system. Let's just say QuickBooks Online. If you want to change anything about that vendor and you go and change that in QuickBooks.com, you're going to have a sync conflict because it's a one directional push. And there's more and more of that that's happening as far as the data synchronization between the GL system and any other source of data system. So meaning that any changes that you want to make to the invoice, to payment, to whatever it is, it's got to take place in the point in the system of origination, meaning in build.com, whereas the GL is just there as a data repository. Let's just say, Expensive, expense report management, right? Same thing exactly. You have the reports created in Expensify. All of the accounts are selected in Expensify. And then the report is exported into QuickBooks online, whether it's a journal entry or as a bill, however you configure it to be. But again, GL is playing a role of a passive recipient. When you talk about Revenue numbers, having worked with a lot of SaaS businesses and having implemented uh, SaaS 606 a few times, 
revenue recognition on those contracts becomes a little bit funky because you have the recurring services, you have right. So now for those businesses that haven't reached the scale to rationalize an ERP, they use an additional system for revenue recognition management of contracts. And so now you have another system that is a source of revenue data that again pushes the data into your GL system. And the GL system is again playing the role of a plus passive recipient. Same is happening with payroll and HRS and so on and so forth. So it's in very limited circumstances. And that's already I have became one of my principles, so to speak, that you touch the GL system directly, maybe during the monthly close when you need to do like previous, you know, any sort of adjustments, previous period adjustments or any sort of an anomalies and artifacts that need to be resolved, or you do it after the audit and implementing all the adjustments that are required by the audit. And so as far as the GL system, meaning for small to medium-sized businesses where we're talking about QuickBooks Online or Zero or Zoho, the capabilities of those systems are being relegated more and more towards reception and integration and repository of the data. And that the source of truth for your sales data becomes your CRM and the way that you set up your CRM. And now... How do you think about that? Is CRM now part of the finance stack or is it part of the sales stack? And that's where I'm saying that this putting HRS as a cornerstone and a centerpiece of the business system configuration makes those distinctions obsolete and irrelevant because the, everything is a finance stack. But everything is a HR stack as well. And every single system somehow touches finance. But at the same time, talking about finance stack like we used to talk about it is just going into the past. It's just one of those concepts that starts to fade away or is gaining new definition. We are going to think about it again, digital transformation. We're transforming something. We're not only transforming systems, we're transforming the conceptual, the paradigm. We're transforming how we think about business systems. And we're thinking about how do we think about them holistically, not in distinct stacks that are siloed out by function that used to be possible, but now it simply isn't possible. Because now you have this convoluted commission plans where now you need the CRM to create reports that are, first of all, you need CRM to create business intelligence reports, all your renewals analysis, your contract value, a lifetime value of the customer, your customer acquisition costs, all those different stuff is part of the CRM, but those are financial metrics that ultimately actually reflect the value of the company. And so the CRM is really not part of the finance stack, because I think the concept of the stack is gone. There is no practical application for it that I can find as a CFO that I have to deal with integrations now because we're acquiring more and more companies. We're integrating them. We're making sure that there is 
consistency in terms of how they use the business systems, which business systems they use, and so forth. So integration is a big part of digital transformation, where you know you had a company that had sophistication of level A, and now you you need to lift them up to level D. And what does that take? What systems are they missing? So there's a big evaluation piece that goes along with it. But that's sort of a tangent that I'm going on. Conscious that we've been chatting for nearly an hour, and we've covered probably a, a lot of ground in this podcast. Just in, in wrapping up, you're a CFO listening to this, and you're realizing that, yes, I've got to have all of these neatly integrated systems, that the finance systems are probably subsidiary to everything else. Mm-hmm. If I'm sitting in, in finance and I'm thinking, well, hang on at the moment, I've got a lot of folk processing transactions. I've got a month end that takes me to workday six or workday seven every month. Where do I actually start addressing that? What would you say to that, that CFO that's trying to get their head around where to start with a digital transformation in the back office? I am back on the HRS. For me, that's where from practical exercises undertaking over many, many, many years and finally seeing the systems reflect the need, it's deploying the right HRIS system. Get away from Engage, get away from Trinet. They bring no value. Legacy, this is what I call them now. Legacy systems are dead weight, meaning all the systems that you're struggling with, you feel the struggle of needing to operate them. And every time you engage them to produce something, it feels like a struggle. And my fellow CFOs know what I'm talking about, where they like dread, oh, I have to go, you do this thing with the system again. You know, every time you think that way, that means you have a legacy system on your hands. It's dead weight. So yeah. replacing HRS and starting there will drive an organic decision-making and will not force your hand to immediately change everything. And it's like complete overhaul and it's super dis- disruptive and super expensive. You're not going to spend more. It's not going to cost you more. It's not a big lift. They're extremely well versed in deployment and rollouts. There's the consultancy network for deployment consultants and so forth. So I would start there. You change that system. It'll drive organic change of the rest of the business systems in your constellation. Fascinating. Dovid, that has been so interesting. Thank you for being this week's guest on the Gross CFO Show. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the time.